And this morning we're going to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 24, and we're going to read the first three verses. Pastor Bruce's title this morning, Do You Know What Time It Is? Do You Know What Time It Is? Out of Matthew 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your inspired word. Lord, we just pray that, God, uh, we would look to it uh, for encouragement and truth and guidance. Lord, as um, signs of the end times, Lord, um, uh, whirl all around us. Lord, we pray that we would always uh, seek to uh, do your will and uh, to be a, a shining light in whatever times that we find ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get into the message, let me uh, also just thank those of you that came yesterday morning to help out in uh, doing some follow-up home visits of guests who attended our uh, Easter extravaganza last Saturday. And, uh, and I really just say a great big thank you to those who came. We had a, there was probably, I think, 14 or 16 of us that came. In fact, raise your hand if you were one of them that, that came yesterday to do those visits. Give them a round of applause. They, they did... They did a great job, and uh, we probably made about 75 visits of, of guests who attended the Easter extravaganza. You say, well, how do you know who to visit? How did you get their address? Well, you may recall uh, that we had a free drawing at the extravaganza where we gave away an iPod Nano, and then we gave away some movie gift cards and some restaurant gift cards. Well, people had to fill out a, a registration card um, as part of that and had to give their information and then we let them know on the card that we would by filling this out we would um, make contact with them and uh, and so we took all those cards and basically sorted them out and then made visits on those people yesterday about 75 of them really within a three mile radius of our church and um, we went out in groups of two and, uh, and some of them had three and it took us about two hours uh, and, you know, the people were, for the most part, very, very receptive to our, if you will, intruding on them, knocking on their door, uninvited, and, uh, and that didn't seem to be a big deal, and we just knocked on the door and basically told them, hey, we just want to thank you for attending um, our Easter extravaganza. We're from the church that put that on, and as soon as we said that, it was like the barriers kind of broke down. They had a smile on their face then, for the most part, not everybody, but and then we're very appreciative of, the, of our church hosting the Easter extravaganza. Almost everybody that, um, you know, would say something, make a comment about how they attended, their kids had fun, they enjoyed it, thank you for doing that, and, uh, and it's a good thing. And then we would, gave them some literature about our church, and, uh, and then even went so far uh, to ask them, hey, is there anything we can pray for you about? And that always elicited a few interesting responses as well. You know, you're not asked that very often. Uh, when's the last time you were even asked as a believer that attends our church? Hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? So you can imagine someone who doesn't attend church regularly, and for the most part probably an unbeliever, is there something I can pray for you about? Some people share their requests, 
Uh, some don't say, no, I'm, I'm fine, and, uh, and just kind of left it at that. But I just want to thank you um, for those that did the follow-up. And, and, of course, now I invite you and ask you to pray um, with me and those who did the follow-up that God would, would draw those people's hearts to himself. He would open up their heart to see their need for Christ, their need uh, for his truth in their life and how his son, Jesus Christ, can make a difference uh, to whatever they're going through in life. And, of course, we told them, let them know our church is just right down the road from the school, Crestview, and we're here to help you and to assist you in your spiritual journey, wherever you may be in that journey. And uh, we would love to uh, assist you in that process in any way that we can. So um, you, you pray that God will do some work in the lives of those people. Well, as we said this morning, we're beginning a brand new series. I'm glad you're here for the first message. And as a way of introduction, let me make an introductory statement in the sense that for millions of people around the world, the future seems rather uncertain. In fact, for a lot of people around the world, and even in our own nation, the future seems rather terrifying and threatening. But I would submit to you that for believers in Jesus Christ, the future is as bright as the noonday sun. Do you believe that? Do you believe that with all your heart, that the future is bright? Now, obviously, when you watch the news, especially the national news, world news, or read in the paper, whatever, uh, that may not, the future may not seem so bright. When you look at the circumstances and the chaos and the events surrounding our nation and our world, but let me tell you, the future is bright for one reason, and that reason is Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming again. And so today we're beginning a brand new series on the second coming of Jesus Christ from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Now, if you have ever wondered about the second coming, if you've ever had questions about the last days, listen, let me tell you up front, you're, you're in a good boat. The disciples of Jesus Christ had questions too. In fact, maybe perhaps some of your questions are such as, are we even living in the last days? Is Jesus really coming soon? And are there signs that confirm Christ's soon return to this earth? In this series, let me tell you, if you've asked some of those questions, this series is just for you. Now, if you haven't given any thought to the second coming of Christ, if you haven't given any thought to the last days and what that means and the impact it has on this world and on unbelievers and believers alike, then listen, I hope this series will capture your hearts. And as we seek to answer some of these questions and more in the next several weeks. And what we're going to discover is what Jesus said about his second coming to this earth again. And we're going to see that his return is closer than you might actually think. Now Matthew 24 and 25 is Jesus' most famous and most prophetic message about the last days and his second coming. In fact, I would encourage you if, you, if you have an interest and you want to take this a little bit beyond the average person, go ahead and for the next few weeks, just begin reading these two chapters. Uh, just read them over and over again and just see what you can glean. These are this is Jesus' own words to his disciples here. And uh, in, in fact, this passage, Matthew 24 and 25, it happens to be the second longest sermon ever recorded by Jesus Christ. The only longer sermon recorded is the Sermon on the Mount in the same book. That is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It is also the longest prophetic section 
in all of the New Testament other than the book of Revelation. Matthew 24 and 25, uh, some of you may be familiar, it's often called the Olivet Discourse. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Olivet Discourse. Does that mean the disciples and Jesus sat around eating olives? No, it means that Jesus and his disciples were on the Mount of Olives. They sat on the Mount of Olives as Jesus answered the questions the disciples posed to him. And so that's why it's often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Now, let me try to set the stage for you. The background, if you will, of what Jesus shares with his disciples. Let me tell you, it's been a wonderful day so far in the temple for the disciples. In fact, let me take that back. It hasn't just been a wonderful day in the temple for the disciples. It's been a great day. Kind of like how many watched the, uh, the Masters yesterday? Oh, only three people. Four? I guess my illustration just bombed here. All right, for those four of us, let me share the illustration. It's been a wonderful day, like it was for Phil Mickelson yesterday, when in three holes he went from five shots back to, to you know, a five-shot different. He had two eagles and a birdie in three holes. And it was a huge day for Phil Mickelson. Let me tell you, it was a huge day for the disciples of Jesus Christ. That day in the temple here. And you say, why is that? Because Jesus has just berated the Pharisees. He has just berated the religious leaders more harshly than he ever has before. In fact, he branded these guys, the Pharisees, as hypocrites. And he pronounces this judgment on them. And the disciples are besides themselves. I mean, they are just, they're jumping out up and down. They are cheering Jesus on. They're like, go get him, Lord. Yes. After all, it's, you know, it's just been this great day. Now, you kind of have to put yourself in the disciples' shoes here. And you have to imagine, then, after this kind of day, the disciples are kind of strutting out of the temple area. And then they walk towards the city gate, and as they do so, they kind of look behind them, and they notice the grandeur of the temple. And we'll look into this a little bit next Sunday. And they look at the surrounding buildings like they never have before. The beauty of this temple. You say, why is that? Because now they're looking at it this temple that they were just in, as kind of their own personal office space. Like, that's where I'm going to be working. After all, if Jesus keeps us up, it won't be long before he ushers in this new kingdom he's been talking about for the last three and a half years. And the disciples are saying, listen, if Jesus is ushering in the new kingdom and he's the king, we are his disciples, we're his right-hand men, that means when Jesus becomes king's, we will be senior statesmen. We will be chief executives along with him. Now, the temple, as I said, it is an extraordinary building. And we'll look at this a little more next Sunday. And it, it was an extraordinary thought that these 12 guys might rule over this city, that is Jerusalem, with Jesus as their king. They are beside themselves with this. And so when they comment to Jesus then about the beauty of the temple... Well, Jesus lays a bombshell on him when he replies in Matthew 24, verse 2, that a day is coming when the temple will be destroyed. Will be what? Destroyed. In fact, Jesus says, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. In other words, Jesus told these guys, listen, do you see those buildings that you're so proud of, that you're marveling at? Do you see the temple and everything surrounding it? Listen, they are going to be obliterated. 
Now, the disciples must have wondered how anything as spectacular as the temple could be destroyed. You've got to be kidding me. But this prediction was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. Then, without any further word of explanation, Jesus walks out of the temple through the eastern gate. He walks across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, where they then can look back and overlook the temple and the mountain that it sits on. They can see the whole thing. And there Jesus sits down. And this bewildered group of men, his followers, his disciples, look at him, and they ask him some pointed questions about what he just said here. In verse 3 of Matthew 24, they say, Tell us, then, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, in their minds, that is in the disciples' minds, they have only asked really one question. From their perspective, the destruction of the temple would be so cataclysmic that it can only mean one thing. The end of the world as they know it. And the fulfillment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But from our vantage point, 2,000 years later, we can see that at least two major future events that Jesus refers to in his answer. One is, he's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And number two, then, he's also referring and talking about the tribulation before the second coming of Jesus at the end of the age. Now, although the destruction of the temple is predicted here in Matthew 24 by Jesus himself, and it has already come true, as I said, in 70 A.D., I believe the main focus, and what we're going to focus on in Jesus' answer to the disciples, is on this great tribulation and his second coming. Now, with that in mind, there's no doubt that most people, in fact, us included, most people are more familiar with Jesus' first coming, his first advent. Do you know what I'm talking about? We celebrate it every year. In fact, not just us, believers and unbelievers alike all over the world celebrate the first coming, the first advent. It's known as Christmas. It's both a spiritual holiday and a secular holiday, a commercialized holiday. And most people are obviously more familiar with the first coming of Jesus Christ, the first advent, than they are the second. But many Christians are not as familiar as the second advent or the second coming of Christ. And yet, belief in the second coming, do you realize, is one of the core doctrines, it's one of the core fundamentals or truths of the Christian faith. And even though there is disagreement, in fact, much disagreement, surrounding the details of Christ's return, Christians throughout history have agreed on this one fact. Jesus is coming again. Do you believe it? Jesus is coming again. Now, with that in mind, I want to answer in this introductory message here two questions concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first question is this, why should I believe it, though? Why should we believe Jesus is coming again? Listen, I don't want us to just take this for granted. I don't want us to just assume this because, well, that's what people have always believed. I want you to understand why. The scriptures talk about this. Most Christians do still believe Jesus is coming again. In fact, according to a 
2006 survey by the Pew Research Center, 79% of Christians in the United States say they believe that Christ will return to earth someday. 20% of those people believe that Jesus will return to earth in their lifetime. But we are living in a day here in 2010 when more and more people, and that would even include more and more believers, theologians, you name it, are abandoning their belief in the literal return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you and I. So the scriptures predicted a time when people would mock the very notion of Christ's return. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says this, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You believe in Jesus is coming again? Where's he at? It's been 2,000 years. Ha, ha, ha. You got duped. So this shouldn't surprise us that there are people there that mock this belief, ridicule people who still hold to this doctrine and this truth and believe Jesus is coming again. And I want you to understand why we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why should you believe? Let me give you six reasons from Scripture. Number one is the promises of God in the Old Testament demand that Jesus returns. The promises of God. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies of the coming Messiah. In fact, it's fair to say that the coming Messiah was the main focus of the Old Testament. That is his first coming. More than a hundred of those prophecies were literally fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ. And it stands to reason then that the remaining Old Testament messianic prophecies will also be fulfilled literally. And that requires the return of Jesus Christ to this earth a second time. Now you have in your notes just a few examples from the Old Testament that I'm going to let you read for yourself due to our time here this morning. You see passages like Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23, and Zechariah 14. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says that God cannot lie to us and that he will not change his mind. In other words, what God has promised, God will do. And much of what he promised about Christ requires that Jesus returns to this earth in triumph in order to bring about the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Why do we believe that Jesus will return? Because the promises of God in the Old Testament demanded. There's a second reason why Jesus is coming again. Number two, the teaching of Christ demands it. Christ's own words also makes it clear that he will return. His earthly teachings was filled with references to the second coming. In fact, on the night of his betrayal by Judas, Christ told his disciples in John 14, verses 2 through 3, a passage many of you are familiar with. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Christ defended his own deity with this bold declaration of his second coming when he told the high priest when he was on trial in Mark chapter 14, verse 62, you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. A short time before that, 
Christ told his disciples in Matthew 24, 27, the passage we're studying here. As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Even several of the parables of Jesus Christ that you read throughout the four Gospels emphasize the reality and the truth of the second coming. In fact, what we're going to see in our study in this Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells us three parables that we will look at. And then these three parables, all of them emphasize the certainty of Christ's return. In the book of Revelation, Christ repeatedly says, Surely I am coming quickly. Surely I am coming quickly. Why can you believe? Why should you believe? Why do we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Because Christ taught this truth himself. Christ has repeatedly assured us of this, and he wants both his friends and his enemies to know, listen, I will be back. The third reason why you should believe is the writers of the New Testament demand it. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes about the second coming. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 4, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This particular text refers then to the rapture, but here's what other writers of the New Testament wrote. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So we celebrated last Sunday, Easter. But the writer goes on to say, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. James 5.7-8 says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then there's even other passages you can go to in the New Testament. Let me give you another reason why Christ is coming again, why we believe this. The corruption in the world demands it. The corruption in the world demands it. The Bible portrays the return of Christ as the blessed hope of the church. But folks, listen, but for unbelievers, the return of Christ is a terrifying prospect. You say, why is that? Because his coming means judgment for them. Jude, verses 14 and 15 says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10 says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired among all those who believe. And of course, the final picture of this judgment is found in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, which you can read for yourself as well. A fifth reason why Jesus is coming again, the destruction of Satan demands it. 
Another reason Christ will return to the earth is to vanquish the devil. Satan, although, yes, he's an already defeated foe, let me tell you, he still exercises a kind of dominion over this world. But when Christ returns, he will overthrow and he will destroy Christ completely. I mean, destroy Satan completely. Before Christ returns, Satan, though, will make one last-ditch effort to retain his dominion over the earth. But you go to Revelation 19, and it describes the scene when Christ will come suddenly and destroy Satan and his enemies. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, Satan is chained. He's thrown into a bottomless pit and then finally confined forever to an eternal lake of fire. And with that, Christ's final victory over Satan is complete. The last reason why Christ will come again why we can believe in his soon return is because the hope of believers demands it. Jesus will come again because his glorious return will fulfill the hope of believers around the world. Listen, God is not in the business of giving false hope. Are you thankful for that? He knows what we are waiting for. He knows the longing of our hearts. His word gives us every reason to long for the return of the king he will not disappoint that hope. In fact, as I said already, Paul calls it our blessed hope in Titus 2.13 when he writes, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as believers, listen, we look forward to the day when Christ will return to the earth. Paul characterizes Christians as those who love his appearing in 2 Timothy the Apostle John adds these words in 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are taught throughout the New Testament to look for the coming of Jesus Christ. We're taught to long for it and to wait patiently and expectantly for it. This has been uh, the blessed hope of every believer since Jesus came the first time. So mark it down. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Now let that thought sink into your heart this morning. The next time you watch the evening news, the next time you read Time Magazine or whatever the case may be, let that thought sink into your heart. Jesus is coming again. You can believe him. World history is barreling toward a conclusion. Let me tell you, the conclusion has already been ordained by God and foretold in Scripture. The world as we know it will end with the return of Jesus Christ. It could be soon or it could be another thousand years or more. Either way, let me tell you, God is not slack concerning his promise. Jesus will return. So, if Jesus is coming again, here's the question big deal if Jesus is coming again what difference does it make if Jesus is coming again what difference should it make in my life today you see my greatest fear as I have contemplated teaching this series has been this that we will come and listen to this series for eight weeks because we are interested in it. But we will come and listen, but leave without being changed by it. 
That's my greatest fear. Now, I understand it is natural for us to be fascinated with end-time events, the last days, the circumstances surrounding the return of Christ, the second coming itself. And as human beings, and as believers in particular, there is a natural tendency to just an interest, to be fascinated by it. But let me tell you, the events surrounding the second coming of Christ is not just for our fascination. It is for our transformation. We ought to be changed by it. Our lives ought to be different by it. And that is what I pray will happen, having come and listened to the word of God, having come to, to learn what Jesus says about the end times and his return to this earth, to gather his believers at the rapture and then to come once and for all at the battle of Armageddon and to reign forever in a thousand year reign here on this earth. Listen, that is not just for... To, to be of interest, it ought to change us from the inside out. It ought to make a difference in how we live today. So how should we respond then? That's the second question I want us to answer. How should we respond to Jesus coming again? You see, the whole point that Jesus made about the destruction of the temple is this. The disciples... Man, they were, they were fascinated by the beauty and the grandeur of the temple that Herod built. And Jesus just knocks that under their footing. He knocks it out of them. He undercuts it. It's like the disciples took pride as Jews in this temple. It's a building. It's all it is. And they were marveling at it. They were fascinated by it. They were admired this beauty of the temple. And Jesus blows them away and says, you think that's beautiful? Listen, it's going to be destroyed, obliterated. And you know what the point Jesus was making with that statement? He's saying, listen, God is more interested. God, you see, we admire the beauty of the structure, but God admires godly lives. God admires believers in Christ who live for him. I'm coming again. How's that making a difference in your life? That's the point Jesus is trying to make. And consequently, then, it's the point he begins to make through the rest of his words in Matthew 24 and 25 that we will see in the coming weeks. The belief that Jesus is coming again should motivate us. It should encourage us to live for Christ. And the Apostle Paul took this line of argument in Romans 13, which I want to spend the rest of our time on. Every moment that passes brings Christ's return closer than the day before. So how should we now live? How should we redeem the time? How should we make the most of our time? Since Jesus is coming again, let me encourage you, it is time to wake up from spiritual apathy. It's time to wake up from spiritual apathy. Do you hear God's alarm clock going off? Listen, do you hear it? God is saying it's time to wake up. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans 13, or you can look at it there in your notes. Romans 13, verses 11 through 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and look what he says. And do this. Why? Knowing the time. What time is it? 
that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. You say, what time is it? Listen, Paul says it's high time to wake up. Paul's sense of urgency is stressed by the word time. Now, the New Testament uses two words for time. One is the word chronos, which refers to a specific time, like on my clock. Right now, I have about 10 minutes left to preach and finish this, and you guys are all keeping track of that. The other word is karyos, which refers to a season of time in which we find ourselves. Karyos is the word Paul uses when he says to do this knowing the season of time. So what season of time is it? What season of time are we living in? The New Testament calls it the, quote, last days or the end of the age. The last days began with Christ first coming to this earth, and it could culminate in the day of his return at any moment. This is what Paul means when he says the night is far spent. The day is at hand. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, it's later than you think. So wake up out of your sleep of spiritual apathy. We're living in the last days, and the coming of the Lord is near. It is at hand. You say, what does all this mean for me? It means, one, our salvation is nearer now than ever before. And it also means our faithfulness as believers today is needed more than ever before. Consider this with me. Paul was stressing the urgency of this commandment in his day, 2,000 years ago. Paul believed the coming of Christ was near and getting near by the moment. So how much more urgent is this commandment for our time 2,000 years later? Paul says, now our salvation, and he's referring to the glorification of our salvation. When we enter into heaven, it is near. 2,000 years near to be precise. Basically, now is certainly not the time to let our guard down. Now is not the time to fall asleep spiritually. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to do so, is it? It is easy to sleepwalk through life, unaware that Jesus could return at any moment. You say, what does it mean to be spiritually asleep? What does it mean to be spiritually apathetic? Well, the dictionary defines sleep as a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to the events taking place around you. In other words, when you're asleep, you're out of touch with reality. And we all like, I wish I was there now. Right? This afternoon, I can't wait to enter in. <laughs> Listen, when you're asleep, you don't know what's going on around you. Why? Because you're asleep. Now, if you want to sleep through a movie, if you want to sleep through a ball game, go ahead, sleep all you want. Take a nap this afternoon and sleep through the final round of the Masters. Go ahead. I could care less if that's what you want to do. But listen, God says there's no excuse for being asleep in what is going around you spiritually. Some hotels, I love it when they do, they have these little signs that you can hang on the doorknob that says, do not disturb. How many have used it before? Sure, we all have. Most of us. So we can sleep in. We don't want the maid to come knocking on the door and disturbing us. Unfortunately, the, some believers go through life with a do not disturb sign hanging around their neck. 
They're content to be saved, but don't disturb them with growing and serving. Don't disturb them with how the second coming of Christ should impact their life now on this earth. Do you know what apathy is? Do you care what apathy is? <laughs> Maybe you heard about the survey that asked, what is the number one problem, ignorance or apathy? The number one answer was, I don't care, and I don't know. I, oh, I said that backwards. I don't know, and I don't care. Apathy is when you don't care what is going on spiritually in the world. You don't care what's going on spiritually in the church or in your life. You're just content to live in your own life with no regard that Jesus could return at any moment. Folks, listen to me. My faithfulness, your faithfulness as a child of God is needed more than ever. Now is the time to wake up. Now is the time to be alert to the things of God. Now is the time to be active in the work of God. Now is the time to get busy serving the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is coming again, and he's coming soon. And since Jesus is coming soon, Paul also challenges us. He says, it's time, number two, to clean up from the deeds of darkness. Follow this analogy with me. What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Well, what do most of you do? when you wake up in the morning. Yes, you wake up, you get out of bed, and you clean up. You take a shower. You go into the bathroom, you take off your pajamas, and you begin to freshen up, clean up, comb your hair, do whatever. You just don't get up and go to work with bedhead, with the rack monster still on your face. And... Man, you clean up before you go out into the world. Paul says that spiritually speaking, that's what we are to do. Clean up from the deeds of darkness, as he calls it. Look what he says in verses 12 and 13 of Romans. He says, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness, in lewdness, not in strife and envy. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. Get rid of your evil deeds. Shed them like dirty clothes. The idea here is waking up in the morning and literally throwing off your dirty clothes of the old life. Guys, it's okay in this one case. Throw your old dirty clothes off, throw them on the floor and walk away from them. Why throw off your dirty clothes of the old life? Because Paul says the night is far spent, the day is at hand. In other words, it's time to wake up and clean up our lives. It's time to get ready. Jesus is coming. And then Paul goes on and he mentions three sets of sins or unacceptable behavior that we should throw off or cast off. Now understand, we don't throw off these deeds of darkness in order to get saved. I hope you do understand that. Salvation is not by works, right? Salvation is by the grace of God, our faith in what Christ did on the cross. He's already done the work for us. And so we don't throw off these deeds of darkness. We don't throw off sin in order to get saved. But because we are saved, because we have received the righteousness of Christ by putting our faith in what he did on the cross, listen, Paul says then, let us now walk properly as in the day. What day? The latter days, the last days, because Jesus is coming soon. 
That is, we are to live an outward life that is consistent with what God is doing on the inside of our lives. But it's not enough. It's not enough just to clean up from the deeds of darkness. Paul says, since Jesus is coming soon, it is time to dress up in the armor of light. Look what he, how he finishes in verse 12. Therefore, let us cast off the work of darknesses, dark, the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. And verse 14 continues, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do well-dressed Christians wear? Well, it's not necessarily a suit and tie for men and a ladies for, I mean, a dress for ladies. Although that's fine and great. Paul says well-dressed Christians wear the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, well-dressed Christians put on his holiness. We put on his humility. We put on his compassion. We put on his wisdom. We put on his forgiveness. We put on his kindness, his patience, his love, and his righteousness. In other words, clothe yourself with Jesus early in the morning, and you'll be well-dressed all day long. I like the illustration Ray Stedman gives. He says this, and I quote, When I get up in the morning, I put on my clothes, intending them to be part of me all day long. To go where I go and do what I do. They cover me. They make me presentable to others. That is the part of your life, or that is the purpose of clothes. In the same way, Paul is saying to us, put on Jesus Christ when you get up in the morning. Make him a part of your life that day. Intend that he go with you everywhere you go, and that he acts through you in everything you do. Call upon his resources. Live your life in Christ. But there's one thing you need to know, one critical thing you need to know when it comes to this. Jesus must be in you before he can be on you. You say, what do you, what do you mean? Listen, Jesus, he must live in your heart as your Lord and as your Savior before you can take him with you to work and to school and to where you play and recreate and whatever. It's not enough just to know things about Jesus. It's not en enough just to know that he lived on this earth and that he walked and died on the cross and you know facts about Jesus. It's not enough. You must know him in your heart. You must put your faith and trust in him because of what he did on the cross in his resurrection. He paid the penalty for your sin. And you must trust him then as your Savior and Lord. So let me ask you a personal question here this morning. Have you trusted Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? Or are you still trusting in your own good works to take you to heaven? Listen, without Jesus, you can never get rid of the deeds of darkness that cling to you. You cannot do it in your own power. It takes a greater power than what you have. Until you accept Jesus' forgiveness, you will continue to live in sin because you have no other choice. But when we invite Jesus to be our Savior and Lord, when we put our faith and trust in him, let me tell you, everything changes. Amen? We are a new creation. We possess a 
the power of the Holy Spirit now to live the way Christ wants us to, to live the way that Paul is admonishing us to. Now look at the last thing Paul says in verse 14, and we'll be done. He says, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. In contrast to the beautiful clothing of Jesus Christ, Paul refers to our ugly, self-centered nature. And Paul's instruction is simple. It's, it's don't think about. Don't meditate on it. Don't plan out and scheme how to gratify the desires of your sinful nature. Instead, remove all opportunities to sin. Why does Paul end that way? Because Jesus is coming soon. The time is short in living in sin, as we're going to find in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 and 25, hinders our witness. It hinders our work for the Lord. I hope you're seeing, because this is all going to tie together in the weeks to come. So, I end with this question, do you know what time it is? No, I'm not talking that it's 10 till noon. I'm not talking that. No, do you understand what time it is? Do you know what time it is? Listen, it's later than you think. Jesus is coming again. He's coming soon. Do you know what time it is? It's time to get ready and get serious about living for Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, listen. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is coming again. Woohoo! Are you excited about that reality? About that thought? You ought to be shouting hallelujah. That thought ought to permeate your heart. It ought to impact you even today and the rest of this week and next month. Jesus is coming again. Therefore, it's time to wake up. It's time to clean up our lives. And it is time to dress up. It's time to stop sleepwalking through life. It's time to throw off those deeds of darkness. It's time to put on Jesus Christ. Paul says the night is almost over. The sun is rising. When's the darkest time of the night? Before dawn. Folks, you can't help but look around our world and see it's dark. But make no mistake, the sun is rising. You better get ready. Jesus is coming soon. And in this first message, the application is simple and pointed. Are you ready? And are you serious? Get ready and get serious about your life as a believer. And if you're not a believer here this morning, oh my. Oh my. I pray that you will open up your heart to God. And you will cry out to him. And you will ask him to give you the faith to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you will put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross in his resurrection. Because it will be a terrifying moment if Jesus should come and you're not one of his children. You don't have a relationship with him. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, as we come to you this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises, the truth that is written all through the word of God that talks about your son coming again.
Lord, we look forward to that day. It is our blessed hope, as Paul says. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who are believers here this morning, that the reality, the thought, and the truth of your coming again will motivate us. It will change us from the inside out. It will encourage us to get ready and to get serious about living for you. That we will walk out of here even today a little bit different. Lord, we would depend on your word. We would depend on the spirit within us to be changed. Lord, I pray, though, for those who do not know you, that you would open up their hearts. You would draw them to you. You would give them the faith to believe in you. And Lord, I pray that even while the praise team sings, they would cry out to you for forgiveness of sin and just express their heart to you and that you would save them, Lord. We pray these things. And also, you know, perhaps you're here as a believer and you know, man, I've been sleepwalking. I'm not ready if God would come. Let me encourage you to use this time to do some business with God. Remember, Jesus died for your sins, and that means you just don't, we don't go to him just to ask forgiveness for salvation, but when we stumble and fall, we can receive forgiveness as a child of God, and he will cleanse us and make us righteous all over again. So, Lord, allow us to do business. Give us your grace. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as they do, let me encourage you to use this time. You come to me to lay aside the worries of my day, to quiet down my busy mind and find the hiding place. Worthy. 